How are you all doing this morning? Enjoying the sunshine? Enduring the sunshine? Loving it. Good. Absolutely loving it. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's great. Um, just going to come over in Genesis um, again, as you probably have gathered already. Chapter 3. Um, we're going to find it. We're, we're in verse 16 to 19. We'll come there in a moment. Um, I just want to pray as we, uh, as we um, just come to God's word. Um, Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord, every day. Lord, thank you, Lord, just for all the promises of your word that we stand on. And Father, we thank you, Lord, most of all that through Jesus Christ we have redemption. Lord, we are a people that have been redeemed. Lord, we just worship you because of that. And Lord, may that always be the passion within our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So we finished off last week with the serpent being told that the descendant of Eve would eventually defeat him. And we see a God who loved this world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But God's love for sinners in no way eliminates his holy hatred of sin. And, and so while it's perfectly true to say that God is love, that's 1 John 4, verse, 6, verse 8 and verse 16, it's also true to say that God is like 1 John 1, 5. And a holy God must deal with sin for the glory of his name. And you see, there are consequences to sin. And if you disobey God, there will be consequences. And that's where we are in, in these these, these few verses. Now you will have noticed, or you may not have noticed, but you, there is um, this chain of blame that moved from man via the woman through to the serpent. So now this, there's a chain, we see a chain of curse that moves the other way round. Rob began last week and he spoke about the serpent. You can listen to it in the podcast if you, if you missed it. But now we turn to Eve's turn. So, Genesis 3, verse 16. And we read, to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But actually this is more than, than just a curse because actually even here we see how God also reinforces his word of hope to Eve. We see the love of God even, even in discipline. And he assures her that she is going to have children and actually therefore she's not immediately going to die. So Eve will know the special privilege of having a family and will ultimately will be the one, at least her descendants will be the one who will bring the Redeemer into this world. However, it's not all good news. Because Eve hears that producing children is going to be no easy matter. In fact, it's going, to be it's going to be characterized by severe pain. And this word that's translated as pain, it can mean struggle or it can mean suffer. So the miseries that will accomplish motherhood are not just physical ones. And mothers and pregnant women need our prayers. They need our support, certainly for protection and for safety. But also, we need to be praying for those mothers who are in sorrow over difficult and wayward children. 
and there is much physical pain in giving birth as well as, of course, great joy, but also there is much pain as well as joy in, in parenthood. And sometimes mothers actually just feel it a little bit harder than dads do. And it's so important that we pray that we support families. It's not easy to bring up children, and it's not easy to bring up teenagers. There are certainly many challenges involved in that, as some of you will already know. But let's be praying. Let's let's be there to support our parents, to, to build up our families. But there's a second thing mentioned here in verse 16 to the woman. It says, your desire will be for your husband. So what does it mean for Eve to be told that her desire will be for her husband? At first reading, we can maybe easily assume that this is about sexual desire. But actually, I think there's a lot more to it than that. And the, the wording, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, exactly parallel the warnings about sin given to Cain in, chapter, in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, where God warns Cain that sin will control him if he doesn't struggle against it. Let me read just the the full verse. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So if this example of sin and, and, and Cain is anything to go by, Eve's desire for her husband is not about, not about sexual thing, but is a struggle for control. And this certainly makes sense, perhaps, in the whole context of the verses that we're looking at here. Now, earlier when Eve took the fruit from the tree and ate it and then gave some to her husband, she thought that, well, she thought she's doing her very best in her eyes for Adam, even though she should have known what she was doing was wrong. And perhaps this temptation of improving her man would be built into the relationship as a permanent reminder of what went wrong. Now, don't get me wrong, most men do need some improving. But, but sin has certainly twisted and distorted that relationship between man and woman. When God created us in his image as male and female in chapter 1, verse 27, this implies, John Piper writes, it implies equality of personhood, equality of dignity, mutual respect, harmony, complementarity, and a unified destiny. And as we already know, Adam and Eve have both sinned against God, and they have distrusted his goodness. They have turned away from him to depend on their own wisdom, to try actually and make themselves happy on their own. They want to be like God. In essence, they they want to take the place of God. But when sin gets the upper hand, relationships are ruined. So chapter 3 verse 16 is really describing the ugly conflict between male and female that marks so much of human history. And this curse, well, it's a description of misery, of conflict. And listen, it's, it's certainly not, and I say not, a model for marriage. Maleness, as God intended, as God created it, has been depraved, it's been corrupted by sin. By the same token, of course, femaleness, as God created it, has been deprived and been corrupted by sin because at the very root of sin is self-reliance, it's self-exaltation, which shows itself 
first as rebellion against God and then very quickly reveals itself as the exploitation of each other. So corrupted maleness produces men who try to subdue, to control, to exploit women for their own private desires. But also corrupted femaleness produces women who try to subdue, to control, to exploit men for their own private desires. And both male and female are depraved. I know it's not very encouraging. Sorry about that. But actually, how this manifests itself, well, it actually is different between the two different sexes. As a rule, men, well, they have more brute strength than women. They tend to use this to abuse, to threaten, to control them. But it's just as true that women know ways of subduing him. And so often they can run circles around him with their words. And when that fails, well, they know other ways of exploiting men's weakness. And there is just as much power in sinful woman to control sinful man as there is the other way around. But this is not the way that God has called us to be. Again, John Piper, I think, gives a helpful illustration here to help us grasp something of this. He says, it's like saying that a man or a woman ballet dancer who both have equal equally accomplished um, dancers who are equally regarded among their peers, that you must seek harmonious execution, that you must complement each other's moves, and don't forget that you will share the applause together. And this kind of advice, of course, is very important. It can deeply affect the beauty of a performance, but if that is all they know about the dance that they're about to perform, they won't be able to do it because they need to know the movements. They have to know their different positions. They have to know who's going to fall and who's going to catch, who's going to run and who's going to stand. It is of the very essence of dance and drama that the players know the distinctive movements that they are about to make. If they don't know their different assignments on stage, there will be no drama and there will be no dance. And so it is within marriage. And relationships. I think today it's fair to say that there's a great deal of identity confusion. Many men and women just don't know what they are meant to be and perhaps the biggest problem is that we spend more time telling each other what we are not to be and we've ended up with confusion, with frustration, with blame. And young men and women and many old ones too need positive practical, biblical vision of what it means to be a man or to be a woman. Listen, it's so easy to pull people down. It's easy to criticize. In fact, there are loads of critics out there wanting to judge you when you try to develop a positive vision of, of what it means for your daughter to be, a, to be feminine and for your son to be masculine. And so what generally happens is, well, sometimes we just simply avoid it. The result is that most couples don't know what it is to be a Christian husband or wife. And God has a vision for a redeemed manhood and a redeemed womanhood. He wants us to recover what we have lost because of sin. And the truth is that who you are as male and female goes to the very heart of your personal identity. In fact, has got serious repercussions for all of life. Knowing your identity is so important, it brings joy, it brings peace to your life. From the very beginning, before sin entered into this world, 
the equality of man and woman is expressed differently in the way in which they relate to one another. Now, it's worth mentioning that when, when both Jesus and Paul use the Old Testament to answer questions about how man and woman should relate to each other, they go back to Genesis chapter 2 rather than to the messed up relationship of Genesis chapter 3. And right from the very beginning, there is a leadership responsibility that man, as men, we need to take seriously. In fact, even, as sin, even after sin entered into this world, Adam is primarily held accountable. You ever wonder why did God not question Eve first? After all, she was the first to eat of the forbidden fruit. Well, the most obvious answer is that Adam was primarily responsible and accountable for their failure to obey God. So listen, husbands, fathers, you have a responsibility that all too often we just abdicate. James Dobson writes in his book, Straight, Talking, Straight Talk to Men and Their Wives, he says this, a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. So... If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then that financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on a Sunday, God holds the man responsible. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not the wife. In my view, said Dobson, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. So even though men and women bear equal individual responsibility before God for their own obedience, nevertheless, within relationship, man has a greater responsibility for sacrificial leadership that must not be neglected. Now, I'm aware that this, of course, is a completely countercultural statement and that not everybody's going to agree with it, but biblically, this appears to be what Scripture teaches. Piper again, he, he adds this. The way God meant it to be before sin entered this world was that sinless man related to women full of love with tender, strong, moral leadership. And sinless woman, full of love in her joy, responsibly supported, with a responsive support for man's leadership. No belittling from the man, no groveling from the woman. Two intelligent, humble, God-centered beings living in beautiful harmony with their unique and their different responsibilities. But the problem is, we are not sinless. So how, how do we work this out in practice? Well, we, we need to be praying for understanding in our relationships with the opposite sex, but also praying for redeemed marriages within our congregation as well. And that will show both the beauty, but also the evangelistic qualities of what it actually, what marriage is, is, is always meant to be. And we need each other. I need Rachel, and she needs me. Because when it comes to making decisions, together we bring balance and we bring, we bring correction in love. The truth is that Rachel protects me probably all too often from making bad decisions, maybe even sinful decisions. And how that works out in practice is, well, that we need, in every decision that we make, it needs to be talked through in order to reach some agreement. 
Now, there have been times when Rachel has been unhappy about a decision that I really wanted to make, and, and I would have been a fool not to listen to her. See, you can only lead well when people want to follow, and leadership requires sacrifice as well as vision. And actually, I just don't want to make her sad. Let me give you an example. When I felt that I heard God's call to church planting, I spoke with Rachel, and she really wasn't sure, and she wasn't ready. So for over 12 months, I prayed that if it was really God that I'd heard from, that, well, that he would call Rachel too. So I waited until God spoke to her. And sometimes, well, that just takes time. But of course, the question is, what if, and this happens, what if you just can't agree? You just can't come to that, that unified decision. Well, I think in 25 years of marriage, we have only once um, not reached a real consensus on an important matter. See, when you've talked at length, when you have spent plenty of time and you just simply cannot reach an agreement, life does need to be go, go on. Decisions still need to be made. You need to be able to move forward. For us, it was about moving to Northern Ireland about a few years after we got married. And after much discussion, we just, we just couldn't get, get agreement on it. And I just simply asked her to trust me. Sometimes you've got to take the lead. But I also made a commitment to her as well that I kept that after two years, if either one of us wanted to move back to England, we would. After two years, we both felt we wanted to move back to England, which was pretty handy, of course. Um, we were there for a total of four years. Within marriage, work to find agreement, if at all possible. So let me sum up what I think it means to lead your family well. Well, I think, firstly, it's about being prayerful. To pray for them, to, to lift them up before God. Secondly, it's about servant-heartedness, but also don't be afraid to take a few risks. Be disciplined and live ordered lives before God. Show tenderness, be sensitive and listen. And then be ready to give up your life to model Christ-like living for the sake of your wife and for the sake of your family. Finally, God turns to Adam, we're in verse 17, and he pinpoints his sin. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the ESV gives a fuller, perhaps a better translation here, because it, it says here, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And that phrase, listen to the voice of, it simply means obeyed. Now, what it's not saying is that man should never listen to a woman, okay? In fact, we would do better if we did listen a bit more, probably. So, husbands, you certainly cannot use this verse to ignore your wife, no matter how much you're tempted. But what it's saying is that Adam should not have done what, his, what, his, what Eve had said when it went against God, what God had said. 
In other words, God comes first. Great principle within life, within relationship. What's God want? What's he saying? And Adam had been clearly warned there'd be no excuse for his disobedience. So just as Eve was cursed in the specialist realm of childbearing, so Adam is cursed in the realm of, of groundkeeping. And this idea of cursed ground or land reoccurs throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24 verse 4 says, And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Jeremiah 44:22 says a very, very similar thing. And it it's true that mankind rules over the land, but also we are absolutely dependent on it. I think over the years we've probably drifted away a little bit from that. But if you spend any time on a farm, you will know how much as a country we are dependent on, on, on our land. But what it meant was that the specific result of this curse is that food production is now going to become a problem. The word here, painful toil, is actually the same word that's used for painful childbirth in verse 16. Instead of freely available fruit to eat, as it was in chapter 2, verse 16, now the ground now produces thorns and thistles, so it's only after sweaty toil will there be any edible produce. And Adam would encounter obstacles. He would have to work hard. He'd have to sweat even harder as a reminder of his disobedience and how it's affected all of creation. But actually, Paul picks up this little theme in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, and takes it a little bit further. He says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that has been revealed to us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So even as Adam the gardener becomes Adam the toiler, Scripture is pointing to this need for rescue, for a rescuer, for some hope which comes through Jesus. That was Paul saying in these few verses. It is only through Jesus Christ that life and relationships can be redeemed. It's only through him that even our work and our employment can be redeemed. But we need to be very careful that we don't overvalue work. By its very nature, it's, it's sweaty, toil, it's hard. It, it leads sometimes to frustration, but also it can be a very meaningful activity as well. Mark Twain once said, work is a necessary evil to be avoided. Now, although um, there are many days you may feel exactly like that, and maybe that Mark Twain was absolutely right, we also know that God has ordained work and that we are to be good stewards of his created world. He has designed work for his glory and actually for our good. So what should our attitude be to work? Just a few quick thoughts. First is this. We need to work for the glory of God. This is Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work 
heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Listen, in all of your work, you're doing it for God, for God's glory, for his honor. Leads on to the second thing is that we need to be good employees. We need to be working hard. We need to be striving for excellence. We need to be growing in our skill sets. Again, some verses, 1 Peter 2. Servants, or could say employees, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, that's a toughie one, to be honest. Proverbs 22 says, Do you have a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings and he will not be, and he will, sorry, he will not stand before obscure men. Listen, we need, as Christians who follow Christ, to give glory to him, but actually we need to be good in what we do. Let's be the best employees we possibly can be. Third thing, leads on again, speak words of grace, encourage your work, work colleagues, and just be a blessing to your business. This is Ephesians 4. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fit the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, how great if we as, as employees, we pray for a business, we, we actually have, bring a blessing to the business and to the people that we work for. We should be the best employees in our companies. Fourth thing is this. Show honesty and integrity in all of your dealings, particularly when it comes to money. Proverbs 11, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but just wait is his delight. Fifth thought is this. Focus on the work that you've been given. Whoever works hard on the land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Proverbs 28 do what you've been called to do. As an employee, you've been given a task or even within any aspect of life. Listen, stay focused. Get the job done. Be a good employee. Sixth thing, be prayerful, dependent on God in all that you do. First, I'm going to pray without ceasing. Proverbs, um, Psalm 1, 2, 7. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. Listen, whether it comes to praying for our church, praying for our families, or praying for our businesses, we should come with the same attitude. We want to be prayerfully depending on God. Let's lift them up before him. And then the last little thought is this. Rest in your justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Listen, make sure your work is gospel centered. Everything you do has got a gospel relevance in how you live. A verse for that is yet, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. Listen, in all that we do, in every aspect of our life, and sometimes we're very tempted to take our work life, what happens tomorrow morning when we head off at whatever time we start work at, and we think, well, that's separate. It doesn't really matter to God. God's not interested. Listen, God is as interested in what you do there as what we do here, as what we do in our homes. 
It all should be done for his glory and for his honor. And listen, we should be the best employees that we can possibly be for his glory and for the blessing of our city and the blessing of our businesses. But there's one final, one final consequence to Adam's disobedience of God, and that is death. It won't come instantaneously, but it will be absolutely certain. Listen, the ultimate statistic of life, one out of every one person is going to die. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground. His very name meant earth. And taken from this humble beginning, he now faces this humiliating end. And the word dust to dust, ashes to ashes, may sound dignified at a funeral service, but actually it really expresses a shocking disgrace. Made in the image of God, we end up as nothing more than floor sweepings. But actually that's not the end, is it not? We've heard already, haven't we? We turn to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. It sheds some new light on this. It says, the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Verse 49. And just as we have been born in the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Listen, this is the wonder of salvation. This is the grace of God. In Christ, by faith, we have been raised from the dust. The hopelessness of the curse has been ended through Christ. That's where we need to finish, is it not? That's why we can rejoice. I know that, that young lady who lost her life this week, she's with Jesus. She's rejoicing with him. She's known that Jesus Christ is her hope. Listen, Christ is your hope by faith. He's eternal life. He is redemption, both in this life, but also in the one that is to come for all who put their trust in him. And the question we've asked already today, do you know him? Do you know him? Listen, it's a simple step of faith. It's a prayer of faith as you, you ask Jesus and you say, first of all, actually, I realize I'm a sinner. That's what this is the whole thing's about. Listen, we have sinned, but in Christ there is hope. And we say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I realize that, Jesus, you're the answer to that. And you invite him to come in. You say, Jesus, I want to be Lord. I want you to take control of my life. If you want to talk about that with me, I'd love to spend some time and just pray with you, if that's that's appropriate. But I want to encourage us all in every aspect of our lives, in our marriages, in all of our relationships, whether that's single or married or whatever, that we do it for God's glory. In our workplace, we honor God, we bless our businesses, but even as we come near the end, that we rejoice in the hope that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stand together. We're going to finish with a, with a, a song um, just celebrating God, Jesus' love for us. But let's just pray first. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, it's a challenging, difficult verses. And Lord, we pray, Father, that it, Lord, what, whatever's from you, Lord God, may it, it, it take root in our hearts, Lord. Whatever's been said, Lord, that Lord just needs to fall to the ground, Father, we pray it would just be gone and forgotten. But, Father, that you would do a work of grace. Lord, help us to be the best that we can be for your glory and for your honor with the help of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.